I'm Vicky Mochama, and this is No Little Plans, a podcast about the UN Sustainable Development Goals in Canada. For what seems like my entire life, there has been a war on drugs. I remember singing this song on the playground. But the war on drugs was not only waged with catchy songs for kids. From the borders to deep inside our jails and prisons, the war on drugs has been a bedrock government policy in a lot more ways than a few ads on children's television. In some ways, the war has shifted. For example, in 2017, the government of Canada legalized marijuana after nearly 100 years of keeping cannabis illegal. A drug that might have once led to jail is now freely for sale. But in most ways, the drug war is still being fought. Like a number of countries all over the world, Canada is in the middle of an opioid crisis. Fentanyl and other strong pain medications entered the drug ecosystem to disastrous and deadly effects. According to the Public Health Agency, nearly 14,000 Canadians died of an opioid-related overdose in Canada between January 2016 and June 2019. The opioid crisis is taking lives, and it shows little signs of stopping. Normally, we tell you about a single sustainable development goal. But there is no specific SDG centered on drug policy. And yet, drug use touches almost every family in every country. It is as pressing a global concern as poverty, food security, gender equality, or any other official UN goal. For people at the front lines of the war on drugs, the lack of a specific goal, though, does not mean that they will be silent. On this episode of No Little Plans, we are going to meet the people who have not and will not be quiet. They are activists, drug users, and allies who are insisting that the war on drugs, or really the war on drug users, must come to an end. Uh, My name's Garth Mullins. I'm the host and executive producer of the Crackdown podcast. And I'm also a drug user activist here in Vancouver. I work with the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users and the BC Association of People on Methadone. Garth is a member of the Crackdown podcast team. On their show, they are telling stories about drug use and drug users from their own perspective. The seven-person production team comes together to tell stories about the drug war as they see it. They call themselves war correspondents. Is anyone else feeling this desperate sense of urgency? I try to count how many of my friends and colleagues have died from overdose. I get to around 50, and I just have to stop. Over the summer, I met up with Garth in Vancouver's downtown east side. We started off by talking about his career. He is a journalist and radio producer who has worked for a lot of major newspapers and broadcasters. I wanted to find out from Garth how drug use overlaps with employment. I asked him what it's like to get a job when you're using illegal drugs. Sometimes it's made getting work difficult, but I've also had to just be secretive about it for most of my life. I've just had to keep that on the down low because places don't hire you if they think you're a drug user because they, they reckon you'll, you know, pawn the laptops and steal stuff at work and not show up and all that. You know, some of my first jobs were in moving and construction and mining and, and those sort of things. 
And they're very serious about it, some of those workplaces. Uh, like I worked in a in what they call a dry camp, a mining camp on the on the Arctic Circle. And they would check everybody for any kind of drugs or alcohol coming in there. They had lots of security screening gear because they didn't want you to be stealing gold that they mined there on the way out. And so, of course, people didn't try and smuggle in beer or alcohol. They smuggled in the smallest, most potent thing they can get. And so everybody who wanted to just have a beer at the end of their 12-hour day, like the shifts were 12 hours there, would instead do coke. So, you know, that's the thing that went through. It goes through your system quicker than other stuff. So when they would piss test people, there was a higher chance you'd get away with it. And um, so I just saw, like, well, I was pretty young. I started working there when I was 17, and I just saw, oh, that's what prohibition looks like. That's the iron law of prohibition. When they try to clamp down, that's what happens. What are some of the ways in which drug users struggle in employment? Lots of people work in the building trades here, and you're not supposed to be on any opioid for a lot of those jobs. They'll fire you right away. But that also means treatment like methadone and uh, suboxone, which are opioids. You're not supposed to be on. There's... Um, you know, a fear of operating heavy equipment when you're under the effects of that. But, you know, if you're on the right levels, it's not like you're sleepy all the time or something. Um, I'm on methadone right now and we're having a fine conversation, you know. So it makes it very difficult. It means that lots of people do get fired for that sort of thing. It means when you get wired, it's hard to get proper treatment and it's hard to disclose to the people there because you risk your job. And the best of the employers will send you to somewhere that's kind of like an abstinence, kind of cold turkey situation. And that doesn't really work out for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. you know, if you could just quit, I think a lot of people would just quit. But it's not so easy. I think that would surprise a lot of people that people are, are doing drugs in secrecy and they're not finding, you know, you know, if you have a job, good or otherwise, that they're not finding supports to be able to disclose what they're doing or what uh, they yeah. need. Well, this is the gaslighting myth of Canada the good, you know, that there's always help. Just reach out your hand. You know, we're a, a compassionate, loving country. And that's kind of how we sell ourselves on the world stage, I think. But at home, the truth is a lot different. And we have, you know, generations, you know, decades now of uh, cuts to social safety nets. And there's very little left. So lots of people are just on their own trying to manage their way through the system. Here in BC, treatment is very privatized. So there's kind of a wild west of recovery houses. Like you can just put a mattress in your basement and say, hey, I'm a recovery house. Come and pay me to stay there. Mm. Or uh, pharmacies where people would get methadone and suboxone. That's, those are all mostly private. And, you know, they're making a, a quite a bit of money off of that system. And even the methadone prescribers operate out of private clinics where you have to pay extra. So instead of a, like everywhere else in the Canada health system where it's socialized medicine, here you have to pay extra. And because lots of people um, who are wired are not on any kind of government assistance, they can't get that paid for, they're paying themselves and that presents a big barrier. And so we don't really have universal coverage in drug treatment. So even the idea that, yeah, you could just go out and get treatment if you just wanted to, it's just it's just not there. And then the extra barriers of the workplace make that even harder. So what would be the solution that you most want to see at the moment when it comes to uh, the opioid crisis? Ending the drug war is is got to be the first thing. You look at the sustainability goals, the 2030 goals, almost half of them are just not achievable if you don't end the drug war. The drug war is international. It's not something that just happens inside of national boundaries. So for, for global justice, you got to end that. And then, 
inside of Canada, yeah, decriminalizing so people aren't getting arrested. So there, there aren't 100,000 people every year getting arrested for mm. possessing drugs and creating a safe drug supply so that people can get the safe version of what right now is is killing people. And that's just – there's no sort of shortcut around that and it does sound counterintuitive. Um, but really everything that people are taking now for the most part is available at a pharmacy. It's the rules that are prohibiting that access. And rather than dissuading people, it's just causing people to die. So it's, it's ineffective even at the goals, the stated goals of the policymakers themselves. The opioid crisis is especially acute in British Columbia. The Harm Reduction Nurses Association in BC is led by Marilou Gagnon, who is also a professor in nursing. For over 15 years, the organization has been demanding policy to help nurses save the lives of drug users and to make the lives of drug users safer. In 2017, Marilou helped open a pop-up overdose prevention site in Ottawa. The site was only open three hours a day. Still, she realized that every day she was seeing the same things and hearing the same complaints from opioid users. It would happen every week that we saw someone come to us in a hospital gown saying that they weren't getting proper pain management in the hospital. They were in pretty bad shape and leaving the hospital to seek an opiate that they could purchase on the street to actually address their pain needs and coming to our site to try to use in a safer way so that they wouldn't overdose. But I've seen that. I've also seen people at the overdose prevention side that, you know, were presenting with such complex health issues and, and there was nothing for them really aside from the emergency room, which people try to avoid at all costs. This is so common. It is a, a huge issue and there are multiple reasons for that. But in large part, I think healthcare providers have to own the fact that they cause a lot of harm to people who use drugs when they interact with them in, in a stigmatizing, uh, judgmental way. And we have a lot of work to do in addition to addressing more of the structural s system issues. Like at the professional level, we have a lot of work to do to change things. And this is on us, like as healthcare providers. As a nurse herself, Marilou sees people when they most need care. I asked what nurses see and experience when it comes to the drug war. Well, nurses in general are at the front line. They're usually the healthcare providers that you'll see the most in the healthcare system, no matter where you go. And it's not really different from in the context of the overdose crisis. Like nurses will be in the emergency room when uh, people are brought in after an overdose. They'll take care of people who are hospitalized in the ICU following an overdose. They also work in supervised consumption services. They work in mobile health clinics, they do outreach. So nurses are really at the forefront in terms of seeing what's happening on the ground, responding to it, along with other groups, of course, like paramedics and um, harm reduction workers, peer workers. But nurses are very present, and so their role may vary, but for sure what nurses see are major obstacles when it comes to providing care to people who use substances, largely because it is such a, such a stigmatized thing and and people have such a negative view of, of drugs and people use drugs and because we criminalize drug use nurses have to often kind of work in a system that is very harmful towards people who use drugs while trying to reduce harms and it, it's really hard to work that way. We think of the war on drugs as mostly a criminal issue but Marilou pointed out that the stigma and criminalization also happens in the medical system. 
I asked what happens when a drug user feels unsafe going to a hospital. Oh, there's so many examples. It is such a common thing to hear people say, I would rather die than go in the emergency room again. Um, people who use drugs are treated so badly in the hospital that, you know, really it's either they will never go to the hospital um, and may actually die from um, health issues that could have been addressed, uh, or they delay significantly uh, going to the hospital, for example, for like an infected wound or something like that. Or they'll kind of like, you know, decide to go with the least harmful space possible for them in terms of addressing their health care and, and try to maybe meet some of their health needs through supervised consumption services that often have a treatment room where they can get some health care and often kind of rely on these spaces to get their primary care. Everything is so focused on overdoses right now, but we tend to like neglect that piece of the conversation that these spaces are also basically for most people, like the only place they get access to healthcare in a way that feels safe to them. For decades, the war on drugs has dispatched users to a place where recovery isn't necessarily the goal. They're sent to prisons. According to Corrections Canada, the government agency that runs federal prisons, Overdoses and overdose deaths in federal prisons have more than doubled between 2017 and 2018. Nicole Keefe is an advocate who works for Prisoners Legal Services in British Columbia. I asked Nicole when she started noticing a change around how people in prisons access support for their drug use. We started to get a lot of calls from prisoners in federal institutions um, reporting one of two things. So they were either saying that they'd applied for um, OAT, opioid agonist treatment, meaning methadone or suboxone, and they were on a waiting list for weeks, months, some in some cases years, without being able to get on treatment. Or they were able to get on treatment and someone, a nurse, a guard, somebody had accused them of trying to divert their medication and they'd been cut off. And some of those people were tapered off, um, but we talked to some people who were cut off cold turkey from high doses with no taper and were suffering really bad, debilitating symptoms of withdrawal. We had one client who attempted suicide after that happened. And we started to see a pattern and to get a lot of these calls. And ultimately, I probably spoke to a hundred or more prisoners in just in, in BC who had experienced these issues. Nicole mentions tapering. You've probably heard of people going cold turkey. But tapering is the process by which people gradually wean themselves off of drugs. And it can be a different process for different addictions. Effectively, it allows drug users to manage their own withdrawal while decreasing the risks associated with that. Involuntary tapers are when drug users are essentially forced off of drugs. In the case of opioids, that means they're also forced off medications like methadone and suboxone. After hearing about these issues, prisoners' legal services tried to raise the problem with Corrections Canada. But that didn't lead to much immediate movement. So they filed a complaint with the Canadian Human Rights Commission in June of 2018. Nicole says they've seen a drop in complaints about involuntary tapers or long wait lists for supportive services. 
I asked Nicole what she would like to see changed about how drug use is treated. Methadone and Suboxone are clear, proven treatments, um, you know, really critical medications for assisting people with opioid use disorder. And so we think there shouldn't be a wait list, right? You know, if you're diabetic, there's not a wait list for insulin, right? So opioid use disorder is a medical issue. It's not a moral issue or an enforcement issue. It's a medical issue, and we think it should be treated as such. And that means that anybody who needs and would benefit from this medication should be able to get it without having to wait. Remember, there isn't an explicit SDG around drug use. So here's what the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crimes has to say on this. Many of the communities and people caught up in the drugs trade, whether users, small-scale traffickers, producers or cultivators, often constitute the most vulnerable and marginalised segments of society. The furthest behind, which the SDGs have endeavoured to reach first. Addressing drug use and addiction can't be done without the work of nurses and medical care staff, or without advocates in prisons and mental health institutions. But most importantly, it cannot be done without the voices of drug users themselves. We should be a long way away from the just say no to drugs jingles, and from a war on drugs that sees the most vulnerable as the most criminal. We can't address issues of gender and gender-based violence, poverty, affordable and sustainable housing, and the environment without first ending the drug war. If the SDGs are a commitment to leaving no one behind, you could argue that the health and well-being of drug users is the biggest test to that promise. A special thanks to the Crackdown team for their help with this episode. The interview with Garth was recorded at On The Mic Training Studio in Vancouver back in June. And you can also learn more about their work and their team at crackdownpod.com. I'm Vicky Mochama, and this has been No Little Plans, a podcast from Community Foundations of Canada. Our producers are Dorsa Islami, Jay Coburn, and Ellen Payne-Smith. And our executive producer is Katie Jensen. Our music is by Elcon, and this show is a project of Strategic Content Labs. Canada's content marketing consultancy. If you want to learn more about the SDGs, go to alliance2030.ca. It's a website created to track SDG efforts by communities across Canada. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at No Little Podcast. Please rate, subscribe, and share as it helps other people find the show. Subscribe wherever you get podcasts and join us as we look at the big plan to reshape the world.